Oh, got my new setup here. Yeah, I like it. Are you, uh, is this a new room too? This is a new apartment. I, uh, my, my landlord talked me into moving into the top floor of the building that I've been living in for a couple of years. He literally asked, said, name your price because I'm a good tenant. Uh, he wanted, he's been listing this for 675, but I said, I, I need 475. He's like, okay. He'd, he'd rather be, be down 200 a month and not have to worry about the tenant being a crackhead. <laughs> so does he think he can re-rent your uh, old apartment easier? Um, yeah. Well, my, my dungeon apartment is, was even cheaper than that. So, uh, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so this is a two bedroom for for four seventy five. Killing it, man! Yeah, trying you to read a sign back there. I gotta get close. I need my oh my reading that, glasses, I guess. I, I, I went on font. Oh, okay. I can't see the whole thing. What's it say? It's it's a JFK quote. Uh, we do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Nice. And then it's like a. I, I went to Hobby Lobby and everything. The, <laughs> it looks the, like Hobby Lobby. Wall art was 50% off and I went on a shopping <laughs> spree because everything was basically 10 bucks a piece. And I needed stuff. I got a lot more walls than I ever had before. So I got to put stuff on it. Yeah. Are you a big Hobby Lobby fan? Do you go to Hobby Lobby a lot? No. And actually that, that was the first time I ever bought anything. I mean, I mean I've gone there and looked around when I've, I got a half hour to kill or something in that part of town or but I've never actually bought anything. It, it's uh, the, 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 the man cave part of it is, is more interesting to me. You know, generally the, the place is very uh, feminine, I would say as far <laughs> as decor. So. Yeah. I've, I've only gone there once. It's a pretty awesome store. I gotta say, I enjoyed the products that were available for sale, but um, never before in my life had, had I been mean mugged as much in one store, <laughs> as many store employees as I was my one time in Hobby Lobby. It Why? was weird. It was like it was like I had something on my face or something. I was, was like an artsy this. place. You would fit right in. I would. Think. I thought I would. I figured I would, but no, I was not <sighs> fitting in at all. I was I was out of place. But what did you have like a Che Guevara shirt on or something? <laughs> I did not have any any political affiliation identified with my clothing at all. And maybe they're just really, really like on the. They're like, okay, we got all these shoplifters buying this artwork. It's like, yeah, I'm gonna shoplift this frame here. It's gonna put it under they, my. Jacket. They thought that you were going to launch your own Thomas Crown affair at the Hobby Lobby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was weird. It was odd. It was like it was like I had something on my face. Like it was, I was getting nothing but weird, mean looks. And most of the time I ignore people. So even the fact that I was able to perceive that people were giving me dirty looks, it was, it was just odd. It was like, they're going out of their way to, to, to look at me weirdly. So I don't think we're going to get a, a, any sponsorship from Hobby Lobby for our no name podcast, but probably not other than the employees. I like the store a lot. Yeah. I wish I could go back. It was that one experience ruined me though. <laughs> so welcome to the podcast everyone i guess it's just gonna be me and dustin this week ellie's out and um it's been two weeks since we last talked i wanted to get your take on um some of our current events on the national scale we hadn't had a chance to really talk national politics and i know um i've had i've had the privilege to ignore most of the most of the news, and so I haven't kept up except for the headlines, which are terrible sounding. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to get your take on what's going on in Afghanistan, uh, as far as our uh, retreat, removal, um, extrication from uh, our endless war. The endless war came to an end, and uh, I guess we should have expected it would be a bad end to an endless war. Yeah, you know, I think that. Uh you know, that it was going to end badly regardless. It was just a matter of how badly uh, degrees. Um, you know, the, the, the funny thing to me has been how much the, the Trumpsters have, uh, have forgotten the fact that Trump made the deal and wanted to be out of there by May 1st and act like 
um, that the with withdrawal is the, the botching of it was was all Biden's fault in the last six months, basically. But it's like, OK, so didn't Trump uh, put anything in motion to make it work right? Uh, didn't the military leaders believe that Trump was serious? Didn't they think that Biden was going to follow through on what Trump had set forth? Um, you know, it's like the the entire system got to the point where they didn't believe that we would that that America would stick to the agreements that it made with people, even though we didn't like the people that we made the agreements with. And right. and you know, it's it's really funny because the very thing that the the uh, Trump folks are attacking Biden over to me, uh, the the fact that he's sticking to his guns to get out, like that that's a that's an endearing and redeeming quality of his. You know, sure you're you're going to have to probably secretly work on it, and it's going to be a covert withdrawal. It's going to take longer than getting out tomorrow or whatever, uh, but. You know, the fact that they are sticking to their guns is is actually, uh, you know, the, it stands out because usually they don't. You know, the, the government's very good at figuring out ways to delay their own decision making and delay their own deadlines. Um, I mean, you look in the last couple of years, uh, how many times the IRS has moved the tax deadline and that never happened in history before. You know, it's like, oh, if it falls on a Saturday, we'll give you till Monday, but that's it. You know, that's usually the extent mm-hmm. of their delaying. And and so like uh, the, the, the entire system is not used to actually people following through on what they say they're going to do. And, and, you know, the irony is that whether you liked it or not, you know, whether you like Trump or not, he did either follow through or try to follow through whether the system wanted him to or not was another question, but, you know, everybody knew where he was, he, you know, it was no secret what direction he was going on, on this stuff. Um, and, you know, he at least made the moves to look like he was serious about it, even if he didn't know how to actually do it. And, and so I think like, People thought that when Biden came in, it was going to go back to the old system where where politicians are just they, they'll say something because it sounds good, but they don't actually mean it. And then when it, they come to find out that, oh, wait, they're actually following through and they meant it. That's when people are shocked now, like <laughs> when mm-hmm. when they, they when they hold to their pledges, that's the shocking moment, you know, because we're not used to it. Yeah, I was surprising, a surprising amount of backbone, um, you know, and kind of defiance about, uh, you know, defending his decision. So I, w- I was surprised by that just from on a personal kind of um, temperamental level that he actually was like, yeah, this is the, this is the decision, good, bad, or otherwise, I'm sticking to it. This is what we got to do. And uh, good for him to stick to the decision. I mean, like you said, whoever ended up withdrawing, was going to make mistakes. It's uh, it's impossible to leave without making a mistake. I mean, and it's even hard to say it's a mistake. It was just an untenable situation. So no matter what you did, you were screwed. Mm-hmm. And that was, um, you know, if you know a little bit about it, you kind of understand that that's the problem. That was the problem about going in. It's a problem about coming out as well. Uh, it's just uh, an untenable situation for what we attempted to do as a country uh, with another country's sovereignty. Nobody leaves the graveyard of empires easily. Right. <laughs> and yeah, and, and thinking about it from the, you know, it sounds like we're going to be working with the Taliban now, which, uh, I mean, I guess that's what we got to do. It's, it's well, such I mean, odd... it, it, And it does seem like they, they do have a problem with ISIS. So, I mean, it's just like what we were doing in, in Syria. You know, it's kind of a triangulated type of situation where, we were fighting Assad and ISIS. Assad was fighting us and ISIS. The <laughs> Russians were helping Assad and fighting ISIS, but we didn't like them involved. So you got all these these trilateral wars where, you know, it's like, okay, today you guys are on our side. Oh, no, now we're going to fight you. Now we're going to split. I mean, it's it's just why you shouldn't get involved in, in other people's civil wars and countries that were put together because France and England 
1922 thought it was a good idea to put 17 tribes together in the same country that weren't the same people. I mean, what what people don't understand is that it's actually it would actually be in our benefit for the Middle East and and Southeast Asia and other areas to splinter. The balkanization process prevents these countries from getting big enough to matter. So if you let them be their own little tribes, let them be their own city states, essentially, they never get big enough to be a problem. And you then you negotiate with their their local people who have control over their 10 square mile area uh, rather than trying to act like these guys control this section when they really don't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and, and so frankly, Afghanistan being splintered into 50 different tribes that aren't united would probably be better off for the world than trying to force them all together. And that applies to Iraq, that applies to Syria, all these, all these countries. Right. You know, you're better off just letting them do their own thing and stop trying to impose not only democracy on them, but their but the borders on them when they're not real borders. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty common sense idea uh, that uh, we've forgotten about. <laughs> you know, it was like a, a hundred years ago, they made a decision, you know, with the nation state idea. And, you know, I, I think a lot of it comes back to the um, the role of capital. It's much easier to in a world global economy to have a big country to deal with and to colonize and to try to colonize a hundred small little countries. Uh, so it was easier back then to do it that way. And, uh, you know, the money talked and they set it up and now we're living in the consequences, you know, the con- the 200 years of consequences that came after that, you know, that decision based on capital to exploit uh, those uh, local resources. And uh, we don't ever talk about that. We're just like, how did we get here? You know, it's like the collective memory of society, you know, continues to shrink. But just understanding how they became countries in the first place is fascinating because, you know, we have this idea of how we became a country and, uh, and create a, you know, a commonality that has kept us together for a while now. Uh, but these we are, are the, countries the, that were just... But the U.S. is the exception, not the rule. And, the, right. and that's what, you know, it's... the. The funniest thing is that the people who talk about American exceptionalism the most are the are the same people that think that we can duplicate it somewhere else exactly. because everybody's like us. And that's not true. I mean, it, it worked here because we're not like everybody else. That's why it worked. <laughs> yeah, that's a great, great point. Uh, the exceptionalism is an exception to the yeah, rule. It's like they, they don't understand. I mean, it, they don't know what the word conservative means either. So, you know, what can you do? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I hope, you know, I hope our collective memory lasts long enough to try to, to dissuade us from doing this kind of nation building outside of the American borders again, at least in my lifetime. Uh, Cause this was such a, you know, an ongoing fuck up. Uh, if it lasts 10 years, we're lucky. If it lasts 10 years. Uh, what do if you, you look at history? It, 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 it <laughs> we're able to stay happen, out man. of other people's business for a maximum of 10 years at a time. And, and it either they, there's either legitimate situations where they drag us back in or where all of a sudden we decide that it's in our interest to be over there doing something, you know, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know, the, the history shows, you know, from, from the time that Saigon fall fell uh, until uh you know, Grenada, basically, every action that the U.S. took was to get out of areas. You got Iran ended up leaving, and that was messy. Uh, you had Lebanon, that was really messy. Uh, and, and the funny thing is, all these folks are trying to compare Afghanistan to, um, to, to Vietnam. And the military guys that I've been watching, they say it's more... Uh, the corollary is more like Lebanon than than Vietnam because in Vietnam, at least to start with, there was a supposed reason to be there. Whereas in in Lebanon, it was it was peacekeeping thing, and then you know the, the barracks got bombed, and and Reagan decided there was no point in having American troops there anymore. And uh, you know that getting. Getting back to a a foreign policy that is like like Reagan's, which is essentially the Teddy Roosevelt, speak softly and carry a big stick, 
you know, don't you, you don't fight every war. You don't get in the wars that you can't win. You only get into wars that you know you can win to scare off the other guys. You know, Grenada was not going to have any chance against us. You know, the fact that it took four days instead of two is is probably, uh, you know, they were going easy on them. Uh, but the the, you know, if you look at Reagan's foreign policy, his wars were all secret wars that were funded illegally. Well, you know what? When you thousands of troops don't die in secret illegal wars, you know, and, and the, the, there's an argument that says that, you know, we're better off doing it that way than the way we've been doing it because less people die that way. Yeah. It's a, it's a, well, I'm hopeful that we're going to learn our lesson. I mean, we're talking what since the world war two, mm-hmm. we've had this kind of mindset of, Tinkering. <laughs> and it started with domino theory and, it, you know, counteracting the Russians and all that. And, and you know, it, people want to say that that was misguided. Well, that was what they had at the time, you know, because yeah, it, it was, was motivated by something real, I think, um, in the beginning. But now it just has become a second nature. We forgot what the, the, the motivating force was because the motivating force doesn't exist anymore. So now we just keep making it, making it up, really. I think. Right. The, the generals in World War II were lieutenants and colonels in World War I, and they were the ones that set up American policy after World War II, and they didn't want to see a third one. So, so really, a lot of it, to begin with, was a preventative process. You, and, and then you had Korea right afterwards, which was a debacle to begin with, mm-hmm. but that was really an extension of, of World War II and, and the fact that the... Uh, they, the, both the Russians and the Chinese were, were tinkering in their backyards and didn't, we didn't want the, the communists controlling everything there. And it just metastasized. And, and uh, I mean, the fact that our involvement actively in South America slowed down and, and stopped as soon as it did in the early 90s was actually a miracle because there was still a lot of stuff that that was going on there that that was not in our best interest either, you know, and, and Venezuela was the product of that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, at some point there's gotta be a realization that uh, you gotta, you gotta take care of your own backyard before you can deal with somebody else's. Right. And I, I would hope we get to that. I'm, you know, we'll see what the climate crisis does as far as a galvanizing force or a splintering force. Um, I think there's still, a lot to be determined on on how the the world can come together to solve whatever becomes the the main issue, <laughs> whether it's um, climate related um, refugee mass uh, exodus from certain regions, or some other geopolitical um, instability that occurs because of climate change, or you know is kind of kicked off by climate change. But I, I keep thinking about. Um, well, I guess I would keep thinking about this, but the, <laughs> the way global finance um, kind of plays uh, the left hand to the right hand of Americans' uh, exceptionalism policy in, in the world, where we go and, and tinker in countries for this or that um, valid or invalid reason. And then the other hand is um, we're using IMF and the World Bank to set policies that um, make sure that to uh, kill public services within those same countries, hollow them out, austerity measures, so we can pay pay the foreign foreign nationals, uh, NGOs uh, from the Western world to come in and, and uh, modernize those countries. But it just, it ends up being this, this weird economic um, tribute system where we d- destabilize the government and we bring in the World Bank to help recover their economy which just ends up making everything worse, but pays the foreign investors to co- colonialize their their, uh, their country over again with this new modern capitalism system system. And then when we decide, oh, it's too it's too complicated, we got to pull out, you know, take take all the aid away. It's because we 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 set up these dual systems of uh, political destabilization and then economic destabilization. But the weird thing is, is that it, for both of them, we're, we're, we tell ourselves, or maybe that's the lie that we're using to sell sell the, the propaganda. We tell ourselves that this is going to help the country. Like we're there to help. 
where they're, you know, the World Bank's here to help you, <laughs> help you get out of debt and, uh, and monetize your, your natural resources. But it never works that way. It only monetizes, you know, it, for somebody else, somebody far away. And, uh, and until we can get de disentangle those two different forces, they seem they work hand in hand. One is helping the other. And, um, and uh, I mean, you know, I don't think there's a conspiracy, but it seems like it sure seems like there's things working in concert behind the scenes to help um, this never ending destabilization act continue. And uh, until it comes to America, I guess, until we're able to actually stand up to our own ways, um, politically and economically. I don't know if we'll learn the lesson because I, I don't know what it looks like to clean up our own mess here because we got a lot of the same things happening. Um, we're just uh, in a different scale and a different standard of living, but. It's not a conspiracy when it is a strategy. Well, it's somebody's strategy. Somebody's making a lot of money off of it. Um, I just don't know these people. They don't write books about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you're right. After World War II, they got together, the generals and the economists, they got together and started, you know, this plan, whether it was motivated by something real, the, the specter of World War III, or it was just motivated by, you know, an economic opportunity. Uh, they did a lot of big things after World War II that we're continuing to kind of feel the after effects of. And um, when stuff like Afghanistan, pulling out of Afghanistan happens, we don't really take a step back and be like, huh, hmm. What was the ultimate cause of this major intractable problem we've created for ourselves? You know, was it George W. Bush? Uh, yeah, that's part of it, but it goes back further. <laughs> it was, uh, does it go back to uh, the first President Bush? Yeah, it goes back to him, but does it go back even for, yeah, it, go, it continues to go back and back and back. And so, pretty soon you got like a four hour documentary about uh, how we got into Afghanistan. And uh, it's just insane. It's really, um, an incredible part of history that, um, for the most part, doesn't get doesn't get spoken about, and we haven't learned any of the lessons. I, I don't think, um, as far as preventing it from happening. So I, I don't, I'm kind of discouraged about the whole thing because I don't feel like you know, other than a couple wins here or there, um, doesn't feel like we learned anything. No, because we don't have people who actually study history. And if they don't study history, they're they're never going to uh, figure out what they did wrong because they they think that their their cause in the moment is virtuous, and it very well may be. But even if you have a virtuous cause, uh, you you've got to look at the history of of the situation and see that you know everything. Not everything, but a, a big part of what was wrong with Afghanistan was the fact that. When the, when the Soviets left, because we were given the Mujahideen weapons to fight them and shoot down their choppers, uh, that we abandoned them at that point already. And then that's where the Taliban came in to play. Um, but you go back even further and you get the British. It was, you know, this is all part of the British Empire problem of, of trying to set these countries up to to work in a western way and they're not western countries and and they're tribal countries so you know on the one hand western folks want to say well they're stuck in the sixth century and that's true on the other they think they can somehow magically bring them from the sixth century to the 20th century or 21st century it doesn't work that way they, the, every culture has to evolve itself naturally and organically you know i mean the the, the closest thing to uh our our goals of working would be japan japan is a success story of a of a culture that was totally backwards when we started imposing our will um but it worked out and but that's also an exception that's not the norm nor is germany but in germany you had all of europe forcing on it at the same time, not just us. So uh, it was in everybody's interest over there to keep them from becoming a problem. And, and their strength and role in the EU is now kind of ironic because they essentially are 40% of the EU when it comes to economics. And so they're right back where they started. You know, Europe ultimately ends up with Germany at the top. 
no matter what you do, you know? <laughs> so, uh, and, and that can be a problem too. So, you know, we either want to keep people down or we want to lift them up, but we don't want them to go beyond where we want them to go. And that doesn't work. Right. Well, freedom, you gotta, you gotta, um, you know, the idea that you can, you, you, there's two ideas there. The first of all is that the idea that you can take a, a, a society and kind of accelerate their cultural development with democracy and, and technology uh, is crazy. You, um, you know, it's possible, but like you said, only the exceptional countries are able to pull it off. Mm -hmm. um, and, and who knows whether that was a product of luck or timing or what have you. And then the second part is, should you do that? No, you shouldn't. Nope. That's not a thing you should do. It's not a part of, uh, you know, that's not in the constitution. <laughs> right. Spreading democracy is not in the constitution. Right. Uh, it's just why, why, why? I mean, other than, you know, this, the protection angle, I get that. Um, but then to the point that, that you're protected and, and we're, we're, we're pretty protected right now. Um, then I just, it just seems like there's no, like you said, if you know history and you know all, all these, um, you know, the history of war, um, there's assimilation and there's cultural annihilation. <laughs> that happens. Uh, but this um, cultural acceleration, um, technological acceleration doesn't happen very well. It typically is, it leaves a lot of collateral damage in the, in the, in the aftermath. And uh, I, and for, you know, even for, from a dollars and cents standpoint, it's not a good investment for our, our national treasure and blood. It's just not, it doesn't pay itself, but it's not smart. It's not, it's like, what, what is the, what's the motivating factor other than this kind of this hubris that we know best and uh, the American way is the best way and stuff like that, which I think is okay to believe that it's okay. Um, but then don't make other people believe it. <laughs> don't force other country, other cultures to believe it too. That's where it gets off track. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause you know, that's, they, they have to have the, their own path. You know, we like, if, if someone tried to do that to America, obviously we would be just like the Taliban. We'd wait out 20 years. We wait out 40 years. We hide in the woods for 60 years until you go away. And then we'll just pop back up and be like, screw you. You know, you think you can, 60 years is enough. You can't get rid of us. That, that's what the movie Red Dawn was about. Right. What, you know, it was, don't, don't mess with us because our teenagers are going to get you eventually. Yeah, we're, we're not going to stop. Why would we stop? Why would you know, we it, stop? It, it's not until the, the country is beaten down and broken. And that's what happened with Japan because they fought a war with, with Russia in the early 1900s, they fought. They fought with China. They fought with um, several other countries, and and they got either stalemated or beaten down. And then we were the final straw. So their people were were culturally broken, and once they are culturally broken and not willing to stand up for themselves, yeah, then you can do some social engineering if you're willing to dump a bunch of money in there. And and build up their economy and 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 all that, um, but you can't take a people that are that are in instill the rebellious tribal mentality, and and try to expect them to skip twenty seven steps in the process. Exactly, now, exactly. Well, I mean, I don't think we've solved anything, but uh, <laughs> I appreciate your take. Um, I don't think. Um, you know, I've, I've been trying to, you know, stay out of the news cycle on this one just because I, I know um, it'll just irritate me. So I've been trying to keep a, a low profile, but I mean, the headlines come through and it's and it's uh, very sad. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we're able to extricate ourselves and then hopefully the Taliban can uh, use some, uh, somebody we can work with. You know, like I said, I don't think we can expect them to adopt the Western ways, but I think there are certain ways um, we can help them help themselves and help their other people in their country and the other factions uh, to get along. Uh, hopefully it's not going to descend into civil war, but um, you know, the same thing happens. The people that don't like the Taliban are just like the Taliban. They're not going to, they're not going anywhere. Right. They have nowhere to go. <laughs> they're here forever. Uh, so, you know, they, they got to figure out a solution. That's uh, I would hope they have to figure out a solution. That's not just uh, killing other people. But um, in keeping with not trying to meddle, I think um, letting them have a civil war is also uh, should be on the table. You know? Yeah, they got to fight their own battles. Right. You know, and, 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 you know, 
if we can offer air power to help prevent uh, human rights violations and war crimes and stuff like that, then yeah, okay, do that. But, uh, you know, because there are pockets where there are resistance fighters and, and you know, we can we can prop them up without us doing the work for them. You see, that that's the whole thing is that if if they're not willing to fight for themselves, it's not going to be sustainable. You know, right. we can and do everything in the world, but if we're fighting, our, that's why they're, the official military that we <laughs> gave all this equipment to, they collapsed faster than Saddam's military. You know, after and and you know, we gave them a lot more stuff than Saddam had at that point. So, um, yeah, it yeah, sounds they, like they just laid down their guns and they didn't walk away. They weren't interested in it. They they and the president of the country <laughs> flew off somewhere. Right. And, you know, I don't blame them. I mean, that's the thing. I don't I, if I was there and, you know, I'm I'm in the army of Afghanistan and um, why, who am I fighting for and who who's you know, whose orders am I following? Uh, it's just it's such a you know, it's it's a puppet, really. You're a puppet of someone it's another government. And now that government's left you on your own. And you're like, good luck. And they just, we'll see ourselves out. And then you're like, OK, well, charades over. Let's see what you know. I'm out of here. I'm not getting paid enough for this, and uh, I don't even I don't even care about money. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not even my, in my culture to care about money. Uh, so yeah, I don't blame any of the any of the people that just walked away. Because um, even no matter how well trained you are, you have to believe in the thing that you're fighting for, and you can't believe in an idea that someone else has created for you to believe in. Right. Uh, it's the same thing with like religion or something. It's like. Uh, Unless there's a reason to believe, why would you keep going back every Sunday? They're in their own dark ages and they got to go through their own renaissance and they got to go through their own enlightenment and all those steps that every other country that that has progressed have to go through. And it, you know, if it took them 200 years from now to get to where we are, uh, that would be astounding because that would have meant that they they did it. A thousand years faster than we did it. <laughs> so well, they, ought, they ought to do it faster because the, there are there are things to help them do it faster. Um, but are we one of those things? <laughs> what we did? No, we're not that we're not one of those things. Uh, you know, like an iPhone might be one of those things, but um, like the United States of government is not one of those things. We we can't go and just be like, all right, this is how you run a government. And this is how you do. This is the military. Uh, it's yeah. It's just it's like. You're going to read it out of a book and now you're going to do it. It's so. The, the one stat that I heard that actually gives me hope that the natural progression could happen is that at, uh, in the, in, uh, what is it? Of all nations on a per capita basis, Afghanistan is number seven in cryptocurrency use. Yeah. And, and so that's the type of advanced type thing that, that would actually change their culture that if they're not relying on a central government then they for their monetary system then they don't need to to uh, be relying on some foreign power to prop up that central government and if if there's nobody who can control the economy through a centralized currency then there's only so much that they can do with guns as well so so the the Taliban's ability to control the economy is greatly reduced if they are using cryptocurrency and have the technology to do that. So if anything, we should be dropping Elon Musk's uh, Starlink uh, satellite system so that everybody has permanent internet and doesn't have to rely on their government for internet access. That's the best thing we could do is say, Elon, we're going to order a million of these units that we're going to do parachute them down into Afghanistan and let people have them. <laughs> I agree. Yeah, that would be great. That would be smart. I mean, so that, that's the that's the kind of help that allows them to help themselves. Mm-hmm. It doesn't say what you got to do with, with this uh, power you've been gifted, uh, but you can do what you want and, and, and make your best choices and live your best life. And just let them, let them be. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and then they'll figure out the best way that makes sense in their cultural moments to, uh, to progress. We don't know what that is because it's not us. They know. They have to figure it out. And I think that something like that would be very kind of agnostic as far as like, uh, you know, you, you might become communist, you might become socialist, you might become democratic. We don't know. Um, but here's some some tools, you know, help yourself. 
And then, you know, just we'll stay over here and do our thing over here and good luck. And yeah, that would be great. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know what Elon's up to, but that sounds like something he would be interested in too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the cryptocurrency angle is great because you're right. Um, this allows p- people to kind of self-govern. It's a self-governance tool, uh, whether it's in a, in a, mac- a macro or a micro scale. It's it's a great way to um, exercise autonomy in in a sphere that um, typically it's hard to exercise much autonomy uh, if you don't have a- enough money to do so. So it's a great it's a great equalizer. Um, so I, I, that's an interesting stat. I'll have to look more and to see what what's, um, cryptocurrency adoption they're uh, adopting. Do you know what coins they were they were most adopting, or you know the, uh, the was highest of? The, well, it was Bitcoin. It was it was uh, all sorts of them. But but it, they were talking about this on CNBC one day, and uh, they uh, on a on a per capita basis adoption it's number seven, and in America's number twenty. Right. So there, from from that standpoint, they're ahead of us. There's more. There's more individual people apparently in Afghanistan using crypto than there are in, in the U.S., which is, you know, the type of thing that if we expect them to leapfrog history, that's the sort of thing that will let them do it. Exactly. Because they don't need a central government if they if they can control their own economy, and and then if they got that, they can go out and they can go buy their own weapons probably from the Russians or something, you know, and, and, and build their own little enclaves and, and uh, do their own thing. Well, you know, that's the hardest thing, you know, that's the biggest um, jump that, um, that an American audience has to make when you're explaining Bitcoin, you know, the revolutionary potential of Bitcoin and blockchain cryptocurrency is this idea that uh, there are other people in the world that don't trust their government or don't have a government or they get fucked by their government every other year. Mm-hmm. And uh, for those people, it's pretty important to have a cryptocurrency available for them to, uh, you know, store value in and protect against the whims of their their shitty government. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you tell that to people in America? They're like, uh, you know, this is this like this idea of putting yourself in the, in the, into a place that's not America. It's a it's a jump that um, a lot of people, you know, it takes a couple minutes for them to be like, oh yeah, well that would be that would be that would be bad if if that was here. And so in America, it's kind of a vanity, you know, Bitcoin's a bit of a vanity project. Um, but in other worlds, it's life and death. This is a life mm-hmm. and death thing that can save save entire generations of of wealth. Um, you know, pre- prevent them from being stolen um, or make it away, make it so it's very hard to be stolen or, or devalued by their governments. And so that's so huge. Uh, it is it is literally life and death in other countries. Um, the potential of of that uh, technology right now. Uh, so it's hard to communicate that to people that we enjoy such so many um, so many things in America, and and our government. Even though we like to rag on our government, the government is pretty stable comparatively speaking. And so we we don't understand what it's like to live somewhere where it's not. And there's like lots of places where it's not. And. Uh, and, we, and we've contributed to a lot of that ourselves as a government, but um, that's for another podcast, I guess. So we're at our half hour or we're beyond half hour, Mark, Dustin. Um, I wanted to check in. I don't know how much you want to speak on this on the record. I, I saw the the text uh, in the text thread with me and, and you and Ellie about uh, th- there's a beef, I guess, between uh, Rob Port and, uh, and Rick Becker, some kind of um, inter- Neocene battle, conservative yeah, battle. <laughs> it 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 uh, it's escalating quickly. It's escalating. Okay. Well, can you do? Would you mind to fill us in the rest of us? Because yeah, uh, yeah. Well, Rob, Rob Port has been going after Rick Becker uh, on average every third day for the last six months, basically. Wow. And uh, and and Rick's had enough of it, and he can't take it anymore. <laughs> so he's literally using his newsroom at Beck. TV to uh, uh, to scream out of the window. Uh, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. Uh, and and he went through the whole uh, history of Rob and how Rob was on our side before, on Rick's side. All the all the things that he he did to help Rick and claim to be supporting Rick and was applauding Rick. Because before before Rob started getting paid by the the forum and some other uh, mainstream in, interests prior to that, uh, 
he was very much in in the uh, the the rogue conservative element. Um, you know, he and I would would battle on certain things, but then be allies on other things. Uh, he was heavily involved in the Tea Party stuff. He was heavily involved in the anti-Obamacare stuff. Uh, but once he started getting a steady paycheck from, you know, the Fargo Forum and Forum Communications and all this, then I think that uh, the biggest thing is he had to show the the actual reporters and the actual journalists that were there all those years that he could go after his friends too. And so after, you know, he used all of his power to, to bring down Heidi Heitkamp, you know, he had to go after somebody else. And, and Rick Becker has now taken Heidi Heitkamp's spot as the person who is living in Rob's head rent-free the most. <laughs> um, and, and so now you've got this, this fight between the two, the two of them and it just goes on and on. And, and, I saw last night Rob Port is also uh, declaring war on Tony Gehrig out in Fargo, city commissioner. Uh, so he's kind of just going after everybody who's considered conservative now, um, which which is not a new phenomenon. The last notable person in North Dakota who flipped from being pro-Republican to or pro-conservative to uh, just going after everybody and, and being an establishment hack. Uh, was Ed Schultz. In the mid-90s, uh, Ed Schultz was considered somebody who could run for governor as a Republican in North Dakota. And this was when John Hoven was a Democrat. <laughs> so thing, things go, things are very interesting. Uh, and, You're not and, suggesting that Rob Port's going to become a Democrat, though. No, no. He's he's obviously wanting to get in the good graces of, of the old establishment in the GOP. He's going establishment is what he's yeah. doing. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, he used to have a right over the week award and, and give it down to the Republicans that weren't acting like Republicans. And now he's opposed to people who do those sort of things. I mean, there, it's a lot of it is an overcorrection. I mean, you, you can mellow out and not be as aggressive as you used to be, but you don't have to completely flip and, and go against your own previous beliefs. Like, right. That, that kind of does yourself in because at that point, number one, nobody can trust you. Number two, what do you actually believe and how much is your belief system based on who's paying you and how much? Yep. Well, I mean, I, and I, I haven't been following it as closely. Um, you know, it's, on, the one, on the one side, it's, it kind of feels like what happens when most people get old, older, they age, is that they do um, start to adopt the status quo or the establishment ideas as their own, whether consciously or subconsciously. Mm -hmm. And so the, um, they, they react more uh, vehemently against, um, I guess, extremist views um, or views outside the mainstream. And so, I, you know, part of that could be what's going on with Rob. I, I haven't followed it at all. Uh, but I think you're right to suggest that um, you can do that and still have principles. <laughs> and, uh, and that's where the, that's the rub right there. You got to be able to, to, mature into a, uh, what do you want to call it? A centrist, mature into a centrist viewpoint, uh, but do it by maintaining some, some dignity <laughs> uh, as far as your principles or the things you believe in. And I think that's what the people that do do that well, that's what they do. They're, they're able to see both sides, but you know, kind of land in the middle for whatever reason, um, but still have the things that they believe in. And I think that's the, the trick to aging well, would be able to do that. And uh, I guess I don't know what's going on with Rob. What, does that make any sense on 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 his standpoint? Um, just getting old. <laughs> I mean, he's getting paid. That, I that's think that changes the, the, guy's the, mind. the age and in, in desire. I mean, at some point, you do want to be more effective. And if you feel like you're not being effective doing what you're doing, then you will shift. Like for me, I I didn't shift in in my belief system, I, I, I shifted in where I'm putting my focus, uh, working on local level stuff that, that is actually can be influenced easier, uh, making the people that, that I worked against for a long time realize, Hey, it's better off having them in the room than outside the room, um, you know, and, and at the table. So, uh, I think a lot of it is, 
comes down to, you know, maybe midlife crisis type of thing, uh, feeling like you wasted your time. I mean, Rob and I are probably the two most outspoken anti-Trump right of center people in the, in the state. Uh, so we're on the same page there. We're on the same page as far as the Trump influence in the party. And, and I've even told Rick Becker this, that, that I don't like the way that he panders to the Trump crowd. Uh, I think he does that too much. Uh, because I, I, I view the Trump crowd and the conservative insurgency that we were part of back in the 05 to 2015 era to be two separate things. There's overlap, but but philosophically, they're very different because, you know, a lot of the stuff from, from decorum and demeanor to just the way that you approach things, like you don't have to destroy everybody to get your way. Like there's no point in it. When you're when you're fighting political battles, you need to be able to go to the person that you just beat and say, hey, let's work on this now. You know, we're on the same side. Let's get this done. You know, you can you can fight tooth and nail on one issue. Then you go have a beer and you work on the next issue together. That's how politics has always worked. But now, like it's it's such a scorched earth mentality on all sides that that nobody can can actually govern anymore because nobody knows how. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, you know, it's better, I guess North Dakota is a special case where the the Democrats really don't have a presence, and so there's going to be a little kind of inter um, inter party squabbling. Or... And if, if Democrats were more uh, influential and meaningful in North Dakota, Republicans would be more united. Yeah, that may, and that makes sense. And I just don't know where the where are the where are those Democrats at. Can't find them anywhere. I mean, not just the ones that uh, are citizens, but uh, the other ones, the ones that are running for government. I mean, literally, I you know, I'm not a, a media. They're Repub- they put an R behind their name because they actually want to get elected. And right. That's, that's why there's so many Republicans. Is that <laughs> it? It that at, at least twenty percent of of legislators with an R behind their name. If the Democratic Party could get elected in their district, they would be Democrats. Right. So you're saying the smartest Democrats in North Dakota become Republicans? Yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> because a, a Democrat can't get elected west of Valley City, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, and if, if they want to get elected, they have to put an R behind their name. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Um, I would just think that um, I mean, your your whole cycle theory is coming up. So hopefully, the cycle is flipping. Uh, just for the betterment of the the discourse. Mm-hmm. Well, and I wanted to say a little bit about, um, I think what you were talking about as far as kind of mellowing with age, but keeping your principles, it's just a matter of tone and you know, understanding, like you said, that you have to work with people and you can't, you know, crucify them too bad on one thing because uh, in a couple of years, you might need them really bad on something else. Mm-hmm. And to understand that, and, you know, it's tough within the media landscape that we live in to um, to keep that, edge because the media landscape wants us to crucify people <laughs> i mean that's kind of the, the way that the reporting comes comes and goes so it's hard to keep the perspective i guess of of actually having to work with somebody versus trying to destroy them and uh well i mean from one standpoint maybe it's better that the republicans kind of destroy themselves a little bit now maybe create some room for the democrats to have a rebirth of some sort i'm not holding my breath, but uh, I guess that would be one of the silver linings that could happen. The national party is too toxic for them in the, in the state. And until they, they realize that they're not going to get anywhere. I mean, you, you can't be a Democrat in North Dakota, at least not with the way that the national democratic party is set up now. Well, if you were a Democrat that um, shit on the national Democrats all the time, would that, uh, would that be effective or would you, would you just be shooting yourself in the foot? Uh, if, if you were genuine about it, if you were, if it wasn't obvious that you were doing it just to stand out, then maybe, um, I mean, if, if the national democratic party was where Joe Manchin is, then North Dakota Democrats could get elected, but it's not. It's somewhere between Joe Biden and, and AOC. That's that's the spectrum now. Yeah. Uh, and and that that's not electable in North Dakota. 
Agreed. Um, I, I was just thinking that someone would, you know, it would have to be authentic. But, you know, a, 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 a critique of the Democratic Party in North Dakota, um, some faces, some names to the critique, uh, I think would be effective. Because there's lots of people that are Democrats that just forgot about it because uh, there's no Democrats to believe in in this state. And, um, you know, nobody wants to be part of a losing team. And uh, so you just kind of go into hiding, think about other things, <laughs> vote on the things that you, uh, you know, the Democratic ideas that come up for the citizen initiatives and other, other opportunities to kind of vote your ideology. But I think if there was someone that, was, that said what everyone else was thinking um, in the Democratic Party that wasn't part of the leadership, um, the elites within the party, I think that would be a gal potentially galvanizing force. I don't know if it's going to happen in 2022, but but potentially 2024, if there's um, someone that can articulate that, I think that would would be interesting at least. But they, anyway, they got to articulate it, but they also got to raise enough money to make it make a dent. And and right, we need a rich person to do this. Yeah, it, they it, are it, our own millionaire. But you can't rely on that either because rich people don't like to spend their own money. <laughs> I know that's how they got that's how they got to be rich right <laughs> well we got we got uh 10 minutes here Dustin I, I do have a hard stop at three yeah um, I think it'd be good to transition into some checkout thoughts um I will go first uh I guess an update here for the listeners my cat it did die it died um about 10 days ago now we um we were ready for the vet to come and euthanize at home uh, but they had, they were like scheduled out two weeks. And so he didn't last that long. He died at home of natural causes or whatever causes were at fault. And uh, it was, uh, it was interesting. I was the first animal I've had that uh, didn't just go get killed somewhere else and then end up dead and you find him on the road or something. Uh, so we were actually there when he died, we were giving him a bath. He, uh, he got so, um, he got so lethargic that he wasn't cleaning himself or using the bathroom very well. Mm -hmm. So we we're giving him a bath in the backyard and uh, and he uh, he died in the bath like uh, like Billy the Kid or uh, Jim Morrison or something. Wow! And uh, laid him on the grass and uh, having not witnessed too many deaths uh, and being with two small kids, um, what happened for the next half hour was my kids asking me if he was dead or not, and me trying to see if he was dead and not knowing for sure. We didn't have you know we didn't have the heartbeat uh, monitor up, so I was feeling you know listening. We got the mirror out under his nose. We couldn't, we literally couldn't tell for like a half hour whether he was dead or not. He seemed dead, but he was also kind of alive. It was weird. Um, but we just kind of sat there. My one girl cried. The, the other uh, was too young to get sad, emotional, but she was kind of um, more excited, I guess, by the, the momentousness of the occasion. And, uh, you know, we had a, it was a nice moment because the sun was going down. It was, um, it was a, it was a, I guess a kind of a sublime moment just uh, as he passed, and uh, and then we kind of just let him hang out. And we brought him inside, laid him on his uh, his pad, and he kind of just hang, hung out in the hallway where he'd been sleeping the last uh, couple weeks, and uh, we buried him the next day in in a, in a, in a service uh, at the, right at sundown. And I gotta say, having gone to many a funeral at like eleven a.m. And then having this funeral right at sundown for the cat. Uh, I much prefer the sundown. I gotta say the sundown burial is is like the best. It's like perfect. I don't know why we don't have the sundown burials because the sun's going down, everything gets dark. You put up some candles, you put them in the ground. It's very beautiful. And it's like, okay, this, this is it's like a metaphor for the transition to the other world. Uh, and it was just nice. It was like good. I've been to so many funerals where it's just like the middle of the day and you're squinting and it's super hot and you're in a suit and it's just like uncomfortable. And you're like, when's this going to be over? And people are crying. And, uh, and you're just like, this is awful. But if we move it to the end of the day, it's so nice. So nice. I, I would say that the answer is pretty simple. It costs more. <laughs> of course the, it costs the people, more. The people who do it want to overtime to do it so you get to pay time and a half right the grave digger doesn't want to be out there at like 9 9 30 on a you know wednesday <laughs> like burying someone right when it gets dark yeah I, I know it's the logistics are not ideal for for working people but for the you know the, the participant in the funeral and the burial 
I felt much more, you know, it, it was it was much more in fitting with what we wanted to to experience for the burial. So I told my wife, bury me at sundown, putting it in my will. But I won't get to be there, so I guess it doesn't matter, but burying her at sundown since I'm there. So that's a little shout out for we gotta change the, the time we bury. I would say we got pretty much anything in the middle of the day is typically a bad time for an event. I would say I can't think of a good time, a good event in, held outside in the middle of the day ever. Can you, Dustin? <laughs> Not really. No. It's like the time you want to be inside. It's so bright. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's definitely uh, it'd be interesting to know what the cost differentials are but you know people are spending you know five ten grand for a funeral already and they're like ah, i'm not gonna spend the extra twelve hundred dollars my, yeah, my no, guess is a, what they are thinking there's a whole bureaucracy there um or you know the the rules and regulations because I, I we had my uncle had died back in april and he was buried at the uh, the military graveyard um cemetery in in mandan and they had uh, cremated him and then they got a little plot for him. And uh, we were shuffled in and out of that um, cemetery, like with military precision, because the, they had other people coming in and uh, and the, like the, the people that were going to put the dirt on, you know, find, um, finalize the resting place and put the headstone. They were like, you know, looking at their watch <laughs> as we were, we, everyone was like putting the flower in the, in the hole. And then you could tell that these guys were like, we got to get out of here. We got to get this. We got to leave. We got to go to the next one. They were so ready to go. It was like we were going to push <laughs> push through this burial. Uh, and that was felt like, uh, you know, kind of inconveniencing them. So I don't think that's something you wanted. You know, they should be able to take as much time as you want at the end. Um, but, yeah, it felt like it was like we got to get out of here. And the, the same thing at the um, with the 21 gun salute. They actually started it two minutes early because they were worried that they were going to um, run out of time for the next people behind us. It was, uh, yeah, they were very busy that day. Sounds like a DMV. <laughs> it was. <laughs> it was like, we got we to go, people. We got, got people to bury. Yeah. Well, my checkout would be uh, there's a lot of stuff going on at the local level. We got we got some action going on on the the uh, special assessment task force. Uh, we're not meeting until I believe September 20th, but uh, we're kind of hitting a do or don't a go or no go situation on whether we're we're going to keep on the track that we are are on. Uh, not very many people like the uh, engineering report that came out to try to develop a new system. So we're going to try to reconfigure that uh, and get some some dollar figures that, that people are conducive and, and won't object to. Um, but yeah, some stuff going on locally. Uh, uh, that's about it. Are you guys taking comment at that uh, meeting? Uh, anybody can show up. We, we have not officially declared a public comment session, but I have mentioned that we need to start taking public comment sooner rather than later on this stuff. Uh, once we get a, a draft that we can agree on uh, as far as a plan, I think we will start taking comment immediately. Uh, the problem is that, that the city hired A2S to put together these five scenarios on how to do it. And scenario number five is the closest to what we wanted originally, but it's not what we wanted. Um, they didn't include a lot of stuff that that the original task force had had agreed on, and, and we had a unanimous 17-0 vote when the first task force came together. And then the city did not utilize the task force recommendations for what it paid for with the engineering firm, and so now we got to try to build. Uh, a plan based on our original uh, concept using the data from the engineering report and other data that the city brings in. And it's kind of frustrating because the, the contract that the city has is a not to exceed $80,000. Uh, and we're pretty sure they've, they probably spent 60 of it already. And we don't really have anything that we want yet. Uh, and we got to kind of do it ourselves now. So 
it's it's a it's not a good situation. And if you're going to hire a, a consultant to imp, try to implement what a task force came up with and, and thought was a great idea, maybe you should include that original concept in your report and not just come up with five other ways to do it. Uh, you know, I wouldn't be upset if they had our version and then five other ways, but they didn't include our our approach at all. They didn't they didn't even incorporate the quarter cent sales tax into the pricing so that we could make this affordable to everybody rather than some some tiered system. They want to make it progressive. I'm a flat tax guy, so I want to see a flat fee. Um, and and when you make it progressive, you actually make it the price higher for the for the top and the bottom uh, rather than kind of keeping it level. Uh, so there's there's a lot of issues with it, and, and uh, there's going to be a decision in the next six weeks for sure whether we continue down this road or, or pull the plug and and you know bring it back in a couple of years. Yeah. So what happened there? Your recommendation wasn't implemented by the city when they hired the engineering firm, or the engineering firm just didn't do what you, the city asked them to do. The 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 engineering firm didn't have the background on what our task force did and the city didn't force them to understand what we did and did not, and neither one incorporated our suggestion into the report. So um, part of it was, as we found out in the last two meetings that the, the data that we were given and used at our first session uh, in, in 2017 through 2018, uh, the city's own numbers were wrong. And like, for instance, uh, the number of uh, dwelling units in the in the city, we were told it was somewhere around 32,000 and AHS believes that it's closer to 18. Uh, and so it's almost a 50% situation and that kind of screws up our, our factoring. And so that's why they, incorporated this tiered system, but the tiered system makes it so that you automatically have an extra 30% of the people that are gonna vote no because they're, they're gonna feel like they're paying more. You know, if you can create a system where 80 to 85% of the people pay less and 10%, the, an extra 10% don't have, see a difference, uh, you can deal with the 5% that are gonna pay more. You know, they're not, going to kill you. But if 30% are paying more, you, you, you don't have a plan. Right. I mean, so it's it's still it's still working its way through, but uh the sausage making process is getting pretty stinky. Yeah, it sounds like it. Well it sounds like the city dropped the ball a couple times. That's, yeah, they should have had two or three of us from the original task force in on at least the planning meetings with the, the engineering firm to you know, kind of give them an idea of what would fly and what wouldn't. Um, outside of, of city staff and uh, Brian Ritter, who is the president of the Bismarck Chamber, I've probably got more man hours into this project than anybody because I was at the legislature lobbying to get the law changed so that we could even look at this sort of a plan. Uh, and, and I probably put 30, 40 hours into it during the session. And the, the report that AE2S had provided actually made it harder to sell this idea to conservatives. And so I had to literally tell my conservative friends, listen, this if it's up to me, nothing in this report is going to make it into the final plan. So, you know, just let us do some work on this and, and we'll see how it looks in two years or four years or five years. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there was a lot, there was a failure to communicate. That's for sure. <laughs> it's disappointing. It sounded like a good plan. I hope you're able to to resurrect parts of it. Because um, as just a regular person that's now a homeowner um, for the last six years, uh, it's something you you don't have to think about till you become a homeowner. And uh, I think you guys kind of did a great job to spread the cost in an equitable way, which is mm -hmm. the whole point. Uh, so yeah, I, I would be interested to see where it goes um, from what you've been given. And then if there is a public comment period, I'd love to, to at least be in the audience to see what kind of commentary mm -hmm. this, this idea gets. Because it seems like um, 
from what I can, from talking to other people and uh, homeowner people, um, they are not happy with the current situation. So uh, right. anything to improve it, I think, would be very popular. It's crazy that they they created a plan that Republicans um, wanted to vote for, and, and the, but it's an entirely Republican state. Do they know where they're 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 making the plan for? Uh, would be my question. Do you, have you been to Bismarck? Have you been yeah, to yeah, and and you know, it's it's they were looking at ways of creating social justice within the plan. And I told, no, we're, we're looking at fair. We want the numbers to work. Our goal was like, we, we, we said we will support a quarter cent sales tax increase. And then uh, not to exceed $25 a month fee on every dwelling unit in the city. And according to the original numbers that the city had that worked, to, to generate the 20 million that we needed on an annual basis for street repair. That concept worked. What they found out was because the dwelling unit count was lower than they thought or something like, we don't even know that half the data isn't there. The, the part of the issue is the GIS system and the billing system don't talk to each other. And so there's different numbers for each property, square footage wise, all these are different things. And, and it's like, garbage in garbage out problems and and mm. you know it's tough to to fix things after the fact when that is going on yeah it's messed up well um great call dustin nice talking to you yeah. this has been the no name podcast i want to thank everyone for joining us uh, we'll be back here in two weeks enjoy your holiday weekend next week and we'll talk soon thanks dustin